talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brennan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we're talking about Messina 1347 of Vladimir Suchi and Roel Fernandez Operatio game. All about Messina during the plague, a city that gets overrun and you're helping try to extinguish the plague, move your workers around a shared city board, put some people to work in your estates. Hopefully that's a good thing. Uh, but it's really about action efficiency and better than dying to plague. It's better than that. Creating action efficiency loops within the game. So I'm really excited to get into that because, you know, we've covered underwater cities on the show, Praga Kaput Regni, and this is sort of like another recent Suchi game in those veins. So it's nice to have a return to form but we'll also be talking about in the latter half of the show over centralizing mechanisms in games uh so i hope that you'll think of this episode sort of like one of our classic deep dives but also with a nice broad discussion at the end that ties into the deep dive itself so we'll, we'll yeah do, maybe like a medium dive let's be a little transparent lately we get way more listeners when we do topic-based episodes or episodes where we cover multiple games we still want to do the deep dive because i think that's something that is important to brent and i we have a lot of fun doing it but we also want to make sure there's something for everybody to listen to so this is our attempt at that we're going to try and deep dive Messina maybe a little bit quicker than we would have in a full hour dedicated to that, but try and get just as in-depth, hit the most important stuff in about 30 minutes, and then have a great discussion on over-centralizing mechanism that can be applied more broadly than just this game in the second half. Yeah, so come along with us. Let us know what you think of this approach. Um, and I just would love to maybe get into right now our ratings and reviews, Jake. What do you think of Messina? Yeah, so my rating for this game is a 6.5 out of 10. It is, for me, the weakest of the Suchi games that we've covered on this podcast, the other being Underwater Cities, which is like a top 10-ish game for me, one that I love. Praga, a game that I think is very good. And this one, to me, is just good. And perhaps if I had played them in a different order, that that might have changed things a little bit. Um, but I, I think that this game is is quite similar in a lot of ways to Praga. I think that it is a very fun experience to play through a couple of times, but I have some real criticisms about this game uh, that stops it short from being one that I would recommend for people to rush out and buy. Nice. We're, we're pretty aligned on this one. So here's mine. Messina 1347 is an ambitious sandbox style game that gives players a robust decision space to explore. Well, the game doesn't quite hit the mark for me as, a, as one I'd like to return to over and over. I'd be thrilled to see designs from Suchi in the future explore similar ideas, especially the worker movement puzzle at its core, 6.5 out of 10. For me, I think my order is Underwater Cities, then Messina, then Praga. Mostly because I like the the worker movement puzzle and the shared play space of that board uh, in Messina a little bit more than what's going on in Praga. Somebody check the tape. What did you rate Praga? I bet it's probably, higher. I bet probably it's the same. higher. I think it's probably the same. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So before we get into our deep dive of this game, our deep dive review, some very brief housekeeping. 
breaking news. We found out after recording this episode that Decision Space did indeed get nominated for a Golden Geek Award. So first and foremost, thank you so much to all of our listeners who nominated us. It means the world to us to be listed alongside so many other great shows. It's very validating of all our hard work on this show. Uh, and it just lets us know that you guys appreciate what we're doing. So if you're a new listener who has maybe found us because of that, welcome. And thanks again to everyone who nominated us. If you want to vote for us, please go ahead and do so. I will include a link in the description of this podcast for where you can go to you know pick us to win the golden geek once again you need 20 geek gold or to be a contributor to the site so if you need help with that just let us know in the discord that's thing number one thing number two because we are likely to have quite a few new listeners thanks to the golden geek nomination i just want to let you all know that we recorded this episode while i was traveling so i recorded portably so my audio isn't as high quality as it normally is on this show. So please just give us a little bit of grace for that. But thank you. We are so delighted to have you here. And we hope you'll become a part of this cast, what we're doing here. Welcome to the interdecisional spaceship. We are so pleased to have you. I checked the tape, Jake. At least meaning I went through my Google Drive and found my notes for Praga. And according to my notes, I gave Praga Kaput Regni a 5 out of 10. So higher here, higher here. Okay, but let's that's talk about the game background real quickly, really quickly. So we, I mentioned that this is a Vladimir Suhi game. It came out in 2021 from Delicious Games, which is Suhi's company that he started to publish Underwater Cities, basically saying, if Underwater Cities succeeds, I'll publish more games under Delicious Games, which luckily it did. So we got Praga Kaput Regni, Messina, and I believe Woodcraft was also published through Delicious Games. This game's co-designed with Raul Fernandez Aparicio, who I believe this first or second game uh, and with Suchi. And then also, you know, you might know Vladimir Suchi from his games like Last Will, which came out in 2011, Pulsar 2849, which came out in 2017. That's, I think, the last one on his on this list, his ludog, uh, ludography that I would love to try. It's one that gets a lot of positive, uh, positive hype. Then we saw Underwater Cities in 2018, Praga in 2020, uh, and then Woodcraft followed up Messina in 2022, which I've seen kind of middling reviews of, Jake. People sort of said, maybe this one's not quite I would say polarizing. Polarizing? I've seen some okay. people that are like really high on it and other people that are really low on it, which is much more intriguing to me than middling. Sure. For sure. I would definitely try it. I think I think Suchi is a designer that does really interesting things. One of the clear design ethos is these are all Euro games, or they're a little bit less on the interactive side of things, which yeah. appeals to to my tastes and preferences. Almost like a little bit in the Steffenfeld vein, but I would say a little bit heavier. Yep, an interesting designer, and definitely designer that I'm always going to be eager to at least see what he's cooking up. And I none of these games have been like. That wasn't good. Yeah. All of them have been games I was really excited to play once, including this one. Almost always personal player puzzles with some light interaction tied to the action selection, typically. And typically the games, at least that we've covered on the show, they're all about these sort of positive agency loops. So trying to find some early production that's going to allow you to continue to snowball or getting more workers that will allow you to continue to snowball. Uh, and those are some of the things we're going to talk about more in this episode. And boy, can you snowball. All right. <laughs> to tell you a little bit more about how that works, let's do a very brief rules overview and we'll meet you on the other side. 
The scene of 1347 is a worker placement and worker movement game in which players take actions by moving their worker pieces around a shared hex grid of tiles representing the city of Messina during the plague. Action spaces may be used by one worker in a given round, and workers may only move at most one space away from their current location to take an action, unless players pay one gold for each additional space they move their worker to take an action. And workers remain on the location uh, that they last use from round to round. So much of the puzzle of Messina is about sequencing and timing these actions around the board. With actions players take, players might collect resources like wood, gold, or fire tokens. They might use wood and gold to build buildings, increasing the production of their estates, move up a city and church track, which allows players to gain more workers or more overseer token actions on their personal player board, which lets them set up chains of additional actions. And overlaid on this worker placement action puzzle, players also seek to use fire to remove plague tokens from city hexes on the shared board and rescue craftsmen, and aristocrats from the city, which providing them with refuge on their own personal player boards, which enable bonus actions or increased production in buildings players have in their estates. Points are scored in Messina through achieving certain objectives tied to scroll tracks in the game, which players can use to increase the number of points that they'll score for different objectives, like gaining money, reaching certain thresholds on the city, church, or fire tracks, repopulating Messina, collecting boats, and more. Messina 1347 is a lightly interactive, efficiency euro all about finding positive feedback loops to take as many actions as possible and to do so as efficiently as possible across the game's six rounds. At the end of the game, the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Brendan, thanks for giving us that rules overview to give people some idea of what's going on in Messina if they haven't played it or checked it out themselves. Let's get into the deep dive. Okay, Jake, so we get to talk about the, the character heads, the decision space overall. And for me, the thing that stands out most about Messina is how broad the decision space is. There's a lot of, there's, a, I would say, a fair amount of different actions you can take and a fair amount of different ways that you can score points in this game. So it feels very broad and sandboxy to me. Maybe I'm going to spend my turns focusing on working on improving my overseer board, my estate, right? And setting up these like double or triple action turns in the mid game and getting that going. Maybe I'm going to focus more on building or maybe I'm going to build myself a little wagon and focus on returning people to the city of Messina. Or maybe I'll play focus on this boats mini game or right? There's lots of different ways that you can sort of push and pull. Maybe some of them more viable than others, but on its face, the decision space feels pretty open and broad. And that's emphasized by the fact that the worker placement, worker movement puzzle gives you a lot of options. You can always move your worker at least one space, but can move them as many as you want, as long as you pay a gold for every additional space beyond one that you move. So you know that the grid is like uh, four by four tiles. It shifts based on player count, but it's fairly large. There's you know more than 10 spaces you can use always. Uh, and I think that gives you this sense of a huge amount of options yeah, that you can make. I agree with that. The decision space, what I'm thinking about on my turn when I play this is characterized by searching. Mm, I think yep. that it's a high search game for sure. You're always looking because not only are there a bunch of different options, there's usually multiple ways to achieve whatever you want to do. If yeah. so, if I need to collect, you know, if I need to, if I'm aiming to advance on the city track, there's maybe one or two spots on the board that just 
directly advance one on the city track if I take that space with my worker. Or uh, perhaps I can use a bonus in my personal player board of people by advancing on one of those tracks to do it. You know, or I could collect gold so that I can pay gold to also advance up that track that way. So you always have, it seems, a lot of different options to do any one thing. And the difference between those options uh, are, are probably pretty small. But cumulatively, yeah. picking the most efficient way to do each action that you want to take over the course of the game, I think, is how you ultimately create big separation in, in point total by by the end of the game. So I think that is a huge part of what you're thinking about on your turn. And then overall, this is definitely a waxing game uh, where your decision space just grows and grows over the course of the game because you're getting more workers, you're getting more resources, giving you more flexibility. And then uh, towards the end of the game, as you mentioned, you can sort of get rid of a worker permanently by uh, resettling the city of Messina uh, which kind of gives you uh, a single sum of points uh, that can be quite significant. Uh, and then that worker just lives on that board for the rest of the game. So that's something that really only becomes viable at the end of the game because you're not going to give up a worker for the rest of the game in, in the second of six rounds. Right. Uh, so that's that's kind of like a whole nother action path that becomes available. So, you know, hugely waxing, hugely searching. I think planning is yeah. also a really important part of Messina, right? It's all, there's a lot of room and a lot of agency to to figure out what turns you're going to set up, right? So it's all about kind of filling up your personal estate board with the right nuns or craftsmen or aristocrats in the right spaces, which themselves are tied to these actions. And when you move your little overseer tokens that let you take actions on that personal player board, your own little estate, you're trying to sort of set up, like Jake said, the right actions at the right times. Um, and then maybe you're going to move those workers out of your estate once you've taken certain actions into these production buildings that you've built to kind of have those workers be utilized the most efficiently over the course of the game, given the timing. So it's all about kind of finding the right time to do the right things and kind of having foresight on maybe what your opponents are trying to accomplish and seeing if there's a way to go about stopping that. You can really mess yourself up in this game also if you don't end up slotting in sort of those nuns, aristocrats, and craftsmen into the right locations at the right time to set up those double actions or maybe even triple actions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your potential just isn't there. Yeah. And I think the last thing I want to talk about with characterizing the decision space is clarity, Yeah, uh, which I think is something that feels a little dynamic over the course of the game because um, early on, you don't maybe have a really clear path for what you're going with yet. Uh, and, and this is sort of dictated by the fact that uh, a lot of the end game scoring, you, you get to sort of choose for yourself. There's a scrolls track that um, basically allows you to like turn on different end game scoring levers for you and you can move so let's say for example uh one of the end game scoring scrolls is points for each building so if you move it up once then you're going to score one point for every building if you move it up again you score two points three and four so that might not be exactly right uh i'm going from memory but the the point being that if you choose the building path and get that all the way up to the top, then your decision space becomes much more clear 
at a certain point in the game because you've committed down that path. Yeah. Uh, and, and that makes it so that anything kind of divergent from that, the trade-off is just too great. So I think your decision space clarity goes from really open to like crystal clear by the end of the game. And that is my first major criticism with this game, which is that I think in that last round, your decision space is too clear. And combined when that is combined with the amount of searching present in that round, it creates sort of like a very paralyzing decision space where you can like literally sit there and calculate out exactly how much points each in any given space could be worth for you or any given action. And I personally am just not willing to sit there and do that. And that just feels bad to be playing a game against other people uh, who, who might be. You know, and it's sort of like, it's just a weird thing with like the magic circle, right? Are we going to just kind of play this loose or are we going to be like sitting here and calculating because I literally could? And I think that the fact that you can resettle for like a single sum of points really confounds that problem or, or not confounds, like really amplifies that problem because now it's not just a matter of, you know, pursuing whatever strategy you want to the max, um, but you have to also look all over the board and see, you know, which of these spaces could I resettle to get, you know, maybe 13 points instead of getting the, you know, the equivalent of like eight points by taking this action that further pursues my strategy. And it just becomes too much. And I think that the, the clarity is, is a big part of that problem. Yep. I couldn't agree more. I think that it's interesting, Jake, a lot of the, the scroll track, like this sort of mechanism where you can opt into scoring more points for certain actions. I think, like on its paper, that appeals to me. I think that that's interesting, right? Because it, it puts us all sort. It it allows you to push the decision space in certain directions. But I think that w one thing that comes up in Messina is that the tension around taking scroll actions to increase your scoring potential versus taking other actions doesn't quite feel as present. Maybe this is wrong. Maybe I think I have the impression that you're not even the impression you're just way better at this game than me so correct me if i'm wrong but i almost would want there to be even more tension around taking those scroll actions because so much of it seems like they're they're fairly available in the game like you can get access to the moving up the scroll track and towards the top of some of the tracks in the game you're going to get rewarded with three two or three scroll actions just for reaching the end which means that it's fairly clear that getting up to the end of these tracks is a very, very powerful thing to do and something you should almost always be doing regardless of the strategy that you're sort of taking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think let's talk more about sort of like what you should always be doing sure. <laughs> later in the second half of the episode. But yeah, I think that I think that's definitely true. Like and there are just better ways, more efficient ways to sort of advance your scroll board than others. Uh, and I think yeah, I, I I mean I guess kind of the point I want to drive home about him about this is that like that flexibility while interesting and cool it also sort of incentivizes you picking a path and sticking to it and yes. earlier rather than later and at that point like the decision space becomes less interesting to me because it's like okay I'm just focusing on on just these two things and I'm gonna amp you know amplify that and the interaction isn't enough to say that. Like if I'm going for the building scrolls track as a big part of my strategy, there's no way you can on the other side of the board can say like I'm gonna stop Jake from doing Jake that from getting the building 
uh, actions that he needs to build buildings. Yeah. There's just way too many ways to get around your opponent's block. And that goes for any avenue yep. of scoring points in the game. So let's talk about what you should always be doing in this game, because I think that that's a question I can answer. And it's, you should always be moving up the city register to get more workers. That's like priority number one. This has the classic thing in a Euro worker placement game of you just, there's more workers that you can get. So you need to get them and you need to get them as fast as possible. Yeah. I mean, and that, that is 100% my experience with the game. And it, I've been, we've been talking about this on the discord a little bit where, uh, you know, We'll talk more about over-centralizing mechanisms, but it's weird a little bit to me to see a game that's come out this recently that just still suffers from this, like, obvious... I mean, I guess it's obvious, but, like, this idea that you have to just prioritize getting more workers first and above all else, since that's sort of, like, a trope uh, and known thing in worker placement games. So I'd almost expect that a worker placement game to, you know, a contemporary game to come out that has an ability to get more workers to have more thoughts paid to like the trade-off of doing that as opposed to like you just have to do it if you know that you have to do it you're at a an enormous insurmountable in my experience advantage to somebody who doesn't know that you need to do that so i mean that's that's kind of a, a weird a weird point for me i think on top of that too what's your take on if you have to improve at least one of your overseer tiles these are the tiles that you're moving around your personal player board that allow you to take two actions when you move them, not just one. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So there are three different tracks in this game. The first is the fire track that you that sort of can be a little bit more incidental as you're playing the game, taking actions. You can get rid of Plague to advance that track. Then there's the city track, which is the track that enables you to get more workers as you advance up it. I think it's once you advance three spaces, you get a worker. And once you advance five spaces, something like that, you get your second worker to have your maximum of five. Yep. And then the third track is the church track. And that helps you uh, do more efficient actions on the overseer board. And in my mind, Brendan, you don't have to do that at all. You okay. don't have to upgrade anything. I think I score just as well often when I do not advance one single space on that track. I mean, and, and there are times when it becomes open to you or because of the uh, buildings that you happen to build that you, you may want to flip that. But it's it's purely optional and, and, and purely, I think, sort of like opportunistic that you take it when the opportunity arises versus the city track, which is just absolutely mandatory in my experience. I, I think I've played this game now like at least a dozen times. So I've played it quite a bit and I've tried exploring both ways. And, and that's been my experience. Maybe, and I hope this is true, that somebody listening to this podcast will be like, you're dead wrong. Like yeah. you can just ignore the city track and it's just as viable to advance up the church track. But I can't see that being the case and it hasn't been my experience. So you know, that, that's what I'm speaking to. Here. Yeah. And this is in part, you know, Jake, as you move up both these tracks, you're scoring points for moving up both of them. So it's not as if moving up the city track is netting you workers, but not points. And moving up the church track is netting you points uh, and improving your overseer tokens. But you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you kind of you, you get points either way. So you want to move up. It, I think you of, get like yeah. a couple more when once you've gotten all the you know, benefits of the workers. Yeah. I think there you get the further you get up the track, you can get some like bonus actions. 
And I think you get more of those bonus actions on the church track, but it's far too few to like rival the significance of getting extra worker actions on each turn. Yep. Uh, so it, like, it does seem like there's like this a small effort to like balance that there, but it just, to me, it doesn't come close to really making that a trade-off that I'm considering when I'm approaching this game. Yeah, absolutely. So this has the like classic positive agency loop that we see in a lot of the Suchi games where you're, you're trying to like build buildings to fill them with people to get the production going. It, it also overlaid has this like putting out fire puzzles, this collecting boat puzzle. There's a lot of stuff just like going on in this game. There's so many ideas packed in. What would you say, Jake, is sort of your favorite? What have been your favorite moments while playing a game of Messina? And I can say mine, which is that one of my favorite things about Messina, you know, underwater cities I love because there's these like this ability to put together these interesting synergistic combos between upgrade cards that you can get. And Messina doesn't have that as much, but it does have those sort of action chain combos. And for me, the highlight turns of, of Messina are these sort of action chain turns where I move my upgraded overseer, take two actions, one of which moves me up a scroll, scroll track that itself or moves me up the maybe the city track that lets me move another token. I get to move that, do two more actions, where you end up having these really sweeping dynamic turns that the game builds towards. But I never feel like I'm exploring that creative of strategy or making that interesting of decisions it feels like i'm just shaving away a little more efficiency here or there and it's not rewarding enough that i want to put tons of time in to solve the puzzle like you were saying so i'm just kind of like making the decisions mostly instinctually and then ultimately the game's not rewarding enough to that i want to push further than that yeah yeah i, I think that's fair criticism i my favorite part about this game is is a little bit different which is that i think it can feel really satisfying to me uh to you know push hard on a strategy and then complete it Mm. and and that's sort of a double-edged sword because it can also be the kind of thing that makes you not want to revisit a game it's like i did everything that i wanted to do this game sure which which is definitely the case here and on one hand it's like yeah okay so now i've sort of seen it and i've pushed as far as it can go but on the other hand when you do that and you achieve everything you want to in a game it feels great yeah like i i have enjoyed exploring this game like right pushing on on different strategic paths so you know like can you complete get to the end of all three tracks for instance i don't know that i've done that but it seems possible i've definitely you know gotten to the end of the two tracks that i was going for neglecting the church track and also got my scrolls you know all the way up to the top of two different tracks you know, to like sort of max out that effort in the, in the most recent game we'd played against, we just finished. I managed to get all of my overseers to the finish line. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Which was pretty cool. I was like, Oh, I didn't know that was possible. And it is, I like really focused on this and that ended up being, you know, a successful strategy and and pretty rewarding as well. So it, you know, a lot of games, I feel like you, you can't do everything and here you can. And that kind of is fun. Uh, You know, and it's, it's another reason why I'd like say like definitely like, you know, check this out and play it once if, if given the opportunity to, because that that is a satisfying feeling of picking your own path and just like nailing it. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe right as our last topic before talking about over-centralizing, we could talk a little bit about the worker movement because that's something I also really enjoy. And I think it is, if there's something that sets this game apart from some of the other Suchi games, right? If you were going to say you should check Messina out over something like Underwater Cities or Prague Kaput Regni, 
it would be because you're interested in this worker movement puzzle and the decisions that it creates, right? So lots of worker placement games don't have a spatial component to the worker actions that you're taking. In a game like Agricola, it doesn't matter what spaces are next to what other spaces because you can just as easily take this action and then move your, you know, take a different action somewhere else on the board in a subsequent turn. Messina upends that and says, no, it matters what actions are next to what other actions on a board and the board is variably set up. So from game to game, certain loops of actions, certain locations on the city grid are going to be more enticing than others just based on what they're next to. I think that that's at least the aim functionally because there's so many ways to do many, so many different things in this game. Some of that tension, I feel like, gets a little bit undercut. But overall, I found it a very pleasant framework of trying to sort of figure out my little paths. It almost feel, felt like starts to feel like the decisions that you make in a pickup and deliver game, like room service, right? Where it's sort of like, I need to get, get my witch to here to deliver a potion, then I need to take a potion action and then get a different worker, uh, a different witch to this location to deliver those potions or something like that. It's not quite like that, but it's playing into that idea and it gives you some of the sequencing and planning. I think it's fun. I think it could have been executed better and I'd love to see more of it. Yeah, the first time I played this game was at Geekway Mini, and we misunderstood a rule, which was that we thought the way the game actually works is, you know, once you start a new round, you sort of lay down all the workers on the board, and then all those spaces are available to anyone, where we thought that we played it originally that if a worker was laid down on a space, like you still, it was still blocked to you, which really made the board feel claustrophobic yeah but in an interesting way yeah unfortunately i think that the idea of being like restricted by the worker movement puzzle here is undercut in in a like a lot of ways which is that there's usually multiple spaces on the board that have the thing you want to do and even if there isn't there's probably another way that you could achieve it uh and it's and it's pretty easy to have get gold to move around further if you really had to and the simple heuristic of like I'm just not going to put all my workers next to each other, right? If you have Gets five you pretty workers far. Yeah. spread out around this board, there's a good chance you're within a space of something you want to do at the start of your turn. Yep. So it kind of only really comes in with like the last worker, or maybe the last two, where you have to kind of think like, okay, none of these are ex- exactly optimal, and I don't want to spend extra gold to play here. And that's really interesting. I just wish it was. Uh, a bigger part of the game yeah and i think and i think that uh it also kind of leads into the increased importance of like the strategies that i'm thinking are over centralized of like needing more workers because that helps you navigate this puzzle more efficiently and then i think the other thing in this game that you absolutely have to do that isn't necessarily signposted well enough uh which is is build out your like uh buildings that you're the quarantine house buildings that give you income uh for having workers in there because that's giving you the resources that you would otherwise be needing to collect from the board and it's making it easier for you to move workers around through income gold income yeah um so like it it, and you know i think it's both undercut and plays into making these strategies feel like too important to overlook so Uh, ultimately it like it doesn't succeed for me in a way that i want to but i do think it's an interesting mechanism that i'd love to see 
explored more in other games. Yeah, which is which is what I said in my starting review. I guess the final, final thing, Jake, is that we both much prefer... There's a way to play Messina where everyone's scroll tracks are the same. They're symmetric. But there's also a way to play with asymmetric player boards and scroll tracks where everyone has different things you could potentially score on by moving up your scroll tracks. And I think that that leads to a little bit more variance in the game and the... Mm asymmetric player boards have one-time actions that you can take on your player board uh, which add even more interesting decisions around timing and when you are moving your sort of nuns and aristocrats and craftsmen around and maybe when you're upgrading them Uh, so i preferred the game that way i thought it made the puzzle a little bit more interesting and just a little bit more dynamic and very yeah i think it's just the best it's a better way to play the game i i think that if you were playing this game once you should play that way way. i don't think it makes it a there's no real increased rules complexity it's just a little bit more interesting yeah um decisions yeah so jake over centralizing mechanisms in games the reason i wanted to bring this topic into this episode is as you've gathered i think that messina uh really suffers from this problem um which is that in messina if feels like as i've explored it you have to advance up the city track early in the game and you have to build these quarantine houses to get income uh over the course of the game uh for workers that are in in quarantine and i just haven't really experienced anyone going against from that that has been successful it feels like following these two strategies you're always scoring right around 140 points which is a good amount of points and if you don't do it, you might score like 50 points. So, so it's like not not a small a small difference by any means. And and so, the, okay, so the reason that I want to talk about this was because I was experiencing that as a criticism in this game. But I also think it's an interesting topic of conversation that uh, comes up in not just this game, but a lot of other games too. So maybe we should sort of define what an over-centralizing mechanic is yeah or, or over centralizing strategy and okay so i think over centralizing strategy can also be defined as a, a dominant strategy right um and that doesn't mean that this is a strategy that you have to pursue in order to win the game right but i think what it means is that it is a strategy that gives you the best chance of winning most of the time yeah uh so you know you could think of it as like a percentage if, if you have a you know 20% chance to win this game by going down the church track, but an 80% chance of winning the game by going down the city track as your main strategy, that doesn't mean you could never win with the church track, of course, but it does mean you should never choose that path if you're trying to win the game. So an and over, therein lies the problem. An over-centralizing strategy is a strategy that players almost always want to pursue while playing a game the, the the whole game when you sit down at the table the the mechanism and the structure of the games are sort of encouraging you to go down one specific path there's one specific way yeah to to interact with the game and there's i, I would say flip what you said it's, it's you always want to pursue it because it almost always wins right what did i say like the other way like uh you almost always want to pursue it Ah, okay. Yeah, you always Because it always wins, right? See, that's what I'm saying. Like, 
if your goal is to win the game above all else, and I'm not advocating that, you know, sometimes you just want to explore something different about a game and that's fine. Um, especially if, you know, maybe it's like, I think that this, this path gives you a 57% chance and the mm. other one gives you a 43. Like if you're trying to win the game, you should objectively always do the 57% path, but the difference is somewhat negligible in the board gaming hobby. Right. We're, and we're, we're all having a good time that, I would never begrudge anyone from, you know, doing the other thing. And I would never begrudge anyone from pursuing a strategy that gives you a 1% chance of winning if if you if you just want to have fun and try that. But, you know, being realistic, I don't know. Do the sake of the conversation. Sense, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're yes. The, the objective is to win. When you sit down to play a board game, you're all trying to win the game. For the most part, asterisks, right. asterisks. We've done the asterisks for the rest of the conversation. Let's just assume you're trying to win, right? You assume that's, you're trying to win. That's the what game. this is trying to do. So, and it can put you in an uncomfortable position too, right? And I, I think that's what I've bounced off against again in Messina, which is that, yes, you, you know, I tried pursuing a different strategy like once and I got like half the points or whatever, yeah. or much less than my average score. And it's so disincentivizes continuing to pursue that that you know this the other strategy becomes dumb it becomes over centralized because maybe it's not even you know if, if you have all the best players in the world playing this game and maybe in play testing right when people have all played this game like dozens and dozens and dozens of time like other avenues begin to open up what's clear to me is that the main dominant strategy is the easiest way to do it, right? So why would I try and do something that's making my life way more difficult to get like at best the same result as I could do easily over here for, you know, getting extra workers and building out quarantine houses? Totally. And from a design perspective, a game having an over-centralizing mechanism is, I would say, a knife of criticism that is le- levied often at, at games when people maybe are trying to say, oh, that's not balanced, right? And I think that that's, that's true. In Messina, the function is that it restricts the decision space. It makes it smaller than we wish it would be because it forces you to pursue a given path. But I think that there's a more interesting conversation to maybe have here about over-centralizing mechanisms and how in some games they might be a, perceived as a, a negative thing, right? Where it's shrinking the decision space. And in other games, maybe that's not as much of an issue. If if the game allows for interaction and makes it such that the different paths within the game, if my pursuit of X path, which is perceived to be optimal, uh, can be meaningfully interacted with. And also if I pursue that and then you stop me, which in turn actually makes Y the better path to pursue, then we're in this interesting sort of in-game strategic meta where the game itself really rewards understanding how players pursuing certain strategies is going to affect other certain strategies to be better or worse in that environment. And in Messina, that happens less because it's mostly a personal player board game driven by your own actions where you don't have as much agency to interact. So an example... Messina becomes a game where both players are trying to do the same thing and it's just about who does it slightly more efficiently than the other person. But if I'm pursuing the buildings and city track strategy and you are too, there's no reason we both can't accomplish our goals. Right. But 
As a counterpoint, an example of the type of game with an over-centralizing mechanism that's maybe not a bad thing for the decision space of the game, and I we would argue is probably actually a good thing, is a game like Living Forest, which we've previously covered on the show. Jake, I want to get better about saying the games that we covered. The oh, episode. what episode? Yeah, yeah, so I'm just looking up. Okay, so is Living Forest, which we covered back in episode 78 of Decision Space, a game that Jake really enjoyed and I liked okay. But within Living Forest, there's this interesting strategic ecosystem of the game where trees, one of the game's victory conditions, are the the shortest path to victory. If you're the only person pursuing trees, it's the most efficient path. I think fire, actually. Okay, fire. Great. Yeah. So let's say fire is the most efficient path if you're the only person pursuing fire. But if other people try to jump on that dominant path, all of a sudden, it's no longer the over-centralizing path and other strategic paths become more inter- more viable right. and more interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great example because the fire you know, can be collected by multiple people where trees are conversely like the inevitable path. Anybody, everyone could collect trees on every turn and they're not probably going to run out. Sure. Certain trees will, but likely everyone will be able to continue doing that and get a tree, a tree, a tree, a tree. Eventually somebody's going to hit the point threshold to win the game. Uh, and if the other two players are splitting up fire, then the tree player will come out on top. So it's like the perfect foil to what otherwise would be an, a dominant strategy. Yep. So here, here's another case study for you. And this is a game that I think has a dominant strategy and it is one of the most beloved games in our hobby and that is Hansa Teutonica. Go on. Go on. Okay. So here's the thing about Hansa Teutonica is that over the course of this game you are upgrading various actions that you'll be taking over the course of the game and very much like in Messina one of those actions you can upgrade is actions itself. So by upgrading the actions action you will get an extra an additional action you can do for each turn so you go from two actions to do on your turn to three a massive 50 percent increase in efficiency and i've done a little bit of research on this asking people in the discord uh and other people i know have has anyone ever seen somebody win a game of hansa teutonica without upgrading the action space and so far nobody is People said, yeah, you can get like really close or you can definitely win by upgrading actions just towards the end of the game. But I don't think, to my knowledge, somebody's like set professed that they've managed to win this game without upgrading that action space, making it to me a clearly like a, a dominant strategy. It's sort of something you need to know going into this game in order to be competitive. So is it, is it wrong? Okay, we've laid out this sort of living force example. And just to play a counterpoint, is it bad that games for design of a game to have a like a button that you have to push, right? Like, it, is that intrinsically a bad thing? Or how can it become a bad thing? Because I think the Living Forest example kind of shows that maybe it's not intrinsically a bad thing. And some of the reasons why it can be a bad thing are if it's not clearly signposted that that's really important. Your first play, I think, can you can it can be confusing. It can sow a little bit of distrust in the game, right? Like the game is saying, hey, go after this strategy. It's totally viable. When in reality, maybe it doesn't end up being as good or as viable as it seems if things are presented within the game about being roughly the same, kind of like flowers in Living Forest. Yeah, well, I think, uh, again, Living Forest is a great example here because a lot of people will play that game the first time and think that the fire path is 
too powerful because the person who goes heavy into that is maybe likely to win the first the first game before people realize how they need to push back against that. But I would say that actually, in effect, fire is not an over-centralizing strategy or a dominant strategy in that game because once you know that, it corrects itself, right? Right. Like you, what going into a game of Living Force now, I don't think fire is the best like I do in Messina or I do in Hansa Teutonica, yeah. uh, which I think doesn't, it, Hansa doesn't have that self-balancing mechanism where, oh, if everybody's fighting over the actions, I can just do my other thing over here because as soon as somebody gets the action, they're just going to be doing more stuff all over the board than you. So I do, I, I don't think though that means that Hansa Teutonica is a bad game. So I think it's worth digging into like why is that not, you know, a huge criticism in Hansa where it is a big criticism for me in Messina. And I think that a big part of it is that the button to push as you put it in Hansa is something that you can dedicate a small portion of your game to mm. and then go on to do other things and yeah. ultimately craft a, a, your main strategy around something else once you have ticked that box. Whereas Messina, it requires you to invest your entire game plan into maximizing this one specific strategy. Also, Hansa gives you more ability to interact with people and uh, kind of make their their lives difficult for achieving it. Yeah, and I think a big part of that, Jake, is the with something that could be over-centralizing, if there's a trade-off in some way for for going down that path, right? If there's something that you're giving up or something, then it's going to inherently be slightly less over-centralizing, right? So for me, the problem really comes to the fore in Messina because you're not giving anything up for getting more workers, right? It's just good to get more workers, so it's good to get more workers. By pursuing that city track, it's not like you're foregoing some other big bonuses on the church track, and there's uncertainty about what you'll get with those workers that you acquire compared to what you might have gotten if you went down this other path. And I think that it works so well in Living Force because there is a lot of uncertainty. There's uncertainty around what what fire will be introduced into the meta, how much people will be able to get, how much, how many fires people will put out. And I think that that makes what would otherwise probably be a dominant strategy because it's on paper the most efficient, if no one else is doing it, a much more interesting thing because it's dynamically useful. And there's trade-offs involved with if I pursue fire, I'm pursuing the fire victory condition and it's coming at the expense of me getting a victory in living forest off of trees or flowers, right? So my progress is a is a wager that it will be the optimal path. Whereas in something like Messina, there's no wager. It's just the optimal path. Yeah. And I, I think I do think that the fact that in Hansa Teutonica, you need to get an extra action maybe is something that bothers me slightly mm. about the design. But it's just because of how the fact it's it's relatively like brief to achieve it, right? You may have to make a significant investment, but if you dedicate two or three turns to making sure you secure that extra action, like you're good and can now go pursue whatever other strategies that you want. Whereas again, in, in Messina, it just takes longer, right? I, I'm going halfway up that track is probably something that I'm not able to achieve until the third round, which is like yeah. halfway through the game. So I've already dedicated half of my game to this strategy. 
and then you know i i want to you know right so if if that just feels like that's a factor with these dominant or over centralizing strategies it's just like what is the investment to do it because if the investment is 50 percent of the game that's a huge problem if it's five or ten percent of the game kind of annoying but let's just get it done and then play the game and but if it's like a hundred percent of the game now it's not even a game anymore right all of a sudden we've moved into tic-tac-toe or or whatever where everything has become 100 percent rote because the dominant strategy dictates your gameplay from start i think also jake is i kind of have two things well one is with messina it's almost like I sort of wish and I hope that as these sort of worker movement game mechanics get explored more, it might be interesting if it's not that you got more actions by getting more workers, but you just got more workers, which gave you more options because then there's tension around. I'm always getting three actions, but based on the restriction of movement around this board, maybe it would be useful to have another worker to give me even more actions. And then that becomes a lever that you have to kind of use to judge. Is it better to kind of be more efficient now or give myself more options? And that could be an interesting realm for these games to explore. But then my yeah, kind of, kind of interesting. Solution, My follow up yeah. is another game that sort of came to mind for a lot of us when we were thinking about over centralizing strategies is the base game of a feast for Odin. The, it's almost the opposite. Uh, yeah, let's let's go here next. It's like the flip side of the coin, which is not an over centralizing strategy, but is a game that has a strategic path that is kind of like, for lack of a better term, which, which for suckers. That's right. Just, it, it, this comes into play when there are better paths than others. So it might not be in a feast for Odin. There's like 90 paths. That's an exaggeration. Right. So yeah, instead of having one path, you have to go down. There's one, there there might be 10 paths presented to you in the game and you can, and nine are equal and and one is on paper. Most of us want our games to be roughly equal in their strategic paths, right? It makes for a richer game. If every time I sit down, there's 10 paths that I could choose and instead of nine, but I think, you know, there's games, Jake, like, in a feast for Odin, the base game, we're talking about animals, tend to be perceived as a weaker way to play the base game of a feast for Odin, just compared to lots of other strategies, like getting exploration boards, whaling. Like whaling yeah. or big emigration. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's true. But I will say, there's something interesting about games that have weaker paths at times, where like if you win with the animal strategy, it becomes interesting. In there's characters sometimes in fighting games that are just made to be weaker because it gives a player the option to play that character. And then if you win with that character, it's an interesting thing that you did. Dan in Street Fighter is an example of this. There's also, this is another video game example, but like in Halo 2, there's this weapon called the Needler, which was just very weak. But if you could succeed with it, it's kind of a slight to your opponents. And I think that, well, I don't in my competitive games necessarily want that, right? Like I want a richer space where options are perceived to be roughly equal and given a given game the skill comes from picking the right path i think sometimes that if there's room for this sort of like expressive interaction with a game it's not always bad i guess what i would say is not that it isn't always bad it's it's hard for me to say like a designer should include a sucker's path (laughs) in their game because that will allow more experienced players to pursue that when playing with new players I, i wouldn't go that far but i do think there are mitigating circumstances on both sides of this coin like a feast for Odin is a great example and it, that honestly might in the base game have a somewhat dominant strategy of its own which is like exploring additional islands early uh and, and like trying to maximize that path over other things but i think that is mitigated significantly both by the fact that 
if multiple people are trying to do that, it's going to be more difficult for you, uh, a la Hansa Teutonica and Living Forest, but also because there's so many ways you're able to like customize and experience that strategy anew and end up with a different yep. experience, wherein Messina is kind of always the same experience to some extent, like the customization possible and divergent paths, you know, uh, like little sub strategies within strategies it, that are possible in a feast for Oda, Odin. Like I'm going exploration plus whaling, or I'm going exploration plus a hint of animals, or plus you know some sheds or whatever. Like all those feel distinct to me in a way that my different games of Messina just haven't felt distinct. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and I think that that's a a really great point jake about the sort of like presence of the ability to have these sort of like overlapping hybrid strategies as like you want them to yeah if a game can have strategic paths that live in the in-between that means that there's just functionally going to be more paths to explore right and it kind of like in hans going back yeah. to the hans example again because i think it fits in here too everybody has the sub strategy of increasing their actions at least once in order to win but like your larger strategy yeah. is like what do you do after that you know at the like okay like the game i recently played like a, i had to get the actions at some point but my what i was like doing with that then was building out my network of cities and trying to build like a really big network to score a lot of end game scoring points that way where other people also did the actions upgrade and then pursue different things is, with it so that it just be it becomes like a small piece of of like and in hansa the story too, Jake, the you've game. played it and i haven't but it's not such that the first round of hansa everyone just upgrades their their additional action move is it like it it pretty well, much it is. pretty much okay. is i mean and, and what i so i mean you can't Pay fully you can't fully achieve it because you have to like in order to upgrade your actions you have to fill up three building spaces uh -huh. on that path and the most okay. you could do is two on your first turn of the game but in all in all the games i've played the first person is is either putting like two other action or two other cubes on one side so that they're only one away from it or they're putting one on both sides to like you know get a foothold and, and force people to like bump them you know so it, it very much is like that is the heart of the game at the start and maybe you want to like neglect if you're the fourth player to go maybe you go somewhere else you know hoping that somebody's gonna like finish it and then it'll be more open for you next time you go okay because this fire. is a physical location <laughs> that you're trying to surround on the board to get your upgrade okay so that's that's interesting yeah. though right because that's almost kind of like the living force example where it's creating interaction within the within the game and i think that yeah. when over centralizing mechanisms can create tension and interaction then they're working well yeah, everybody could keep just forever bumping yeah. each other out of that space until somebody like decides to stop doing it, per, you know? Well, so, yeah. That's a, a little taste on over-centralizing mechanisms. And I again, we hope that you will give us feedback on this episode format. Jake, I have feedback for us. If we do this format in the future, which I imagine we will, we should put a sting in between the game review and the like topic, right? Like a nice little like decision space. Yeah. I mean, I do put in the little like song thing. Oh, perfect! From well, our friends, the Flash Flood. Jake's already doing it. You don't even listen to our episodes, Brendan. Well, wow. you do because you edit. Yeah. I, so, Brendan doesn't even know that we have a sting. I know we have a shaking my head. Okay, I know we have a sting. I didn't know for sure you put it right. 
I, I would love to hear what other people have as examples of suckers paths or over dominant strategy yeah. strategies. I, I suspect that dominant strategy games are harder to come by because they're they're a big problem, right? So a lot of the games that get published are, are trying to have this developed out. Yeah. That's like a huge point of developing. Uh, and, and if they are discovered, that can really take like really tarnish the game. I think a few acres of snow is a game that I haven't played either. And all I know about it is that there's like a dominant strategy. I also have never played it. And of course I also know about the Halifax hammer. It's, I think this is the most legendary example. It's sort of right. like we should let the, the poor game go. Right. But, it, but I mean, up until that, right, that, that was sort of a, a game that people talked about a lot and, and enjoy. And now it's kind of puffed up in smoke. People also talk about like Puerto Rico as being a game where, you have to experience players like kind of have to do the same standard openings mm. or else it's sort of going to mess things up for people. Like all of a sudden, like it'll become too much ex- advantage to the player following the inexperienced player. I don't know to what extent that's true, but th- these are just things that you hear in the ether. Sure. And yeah. So tell us your examples. Yeah, let us know in our Discord. Again, you can find a link to it in our show notes. Um, Coming up, we're going to have, for our pre-planners, still planning an episode of The Resistance. We'll probably look at social deduction games overall and what make for interesting decisions in those. Probably touch on Avalon and maybe Quest. We'll see. Secret Hitler, too. Uh, I want to talk about that. And... uh, (laughs) on the show thanks to our patrons who selected that game for us to cover and then jake and i are also playing like architects of the west kingdom a bunch right now so that'll get coverage on the show in some way shape or form and then there's also chicago express slash wabash cannon uh the same name for the same game i like how you said that names for the same game uh that we'll absolutely cover at some point uh as well so if you're intrigued with by any of those games and we're looking for an excuse to go get a play under your belt they're all on board game arena except for the Dang. resistance. Pre-planners are going to have their homework. Yeah. Get it out for it. them. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of decision space. As always, we want to thank Hembry for our intro and outro music. Reach out and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Y'all. Bye. Y'all.